The place names will scare you. Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl, places where catastrophic accidents at nuclear power plants made the case, at least critics of nuclear power argued, that nuclear is just too dangerous for any society to consider building into its future. And so for many years, for many people, the sun had seemed to be setting on nuclear as a way to keep the lights on. But you know what other quality nuclear power has? It is virtually carbon-free. Its impact on global warming is virtually negligible, which raises the question, if we are looking for ways to mitigate climate change, should nuclear be getting a new look? Would the risk of nuclear be worth it? Would the risk of nuclear be worth it? Or is it riskier not to go more nuclear? Well, we think in all of these questions we have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, it's time to expand nuclear energy. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two, experts in this topic who will argue for and against the resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Florence Gold Theater in New York City will vote to choose the winner. And if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Again, our resolution is, it's time to expand nuclear power. Let's meet our debaters. Please first welcome on the team arguing for the resolution, ladies and gentlemen, Kirsty Gogan. Oh, no, no. Kirsty, you stay down for this. Oh. <laughs> Kirsty, this is just to say hello to you. Kirsty, oh, you, you are the co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. That's an NGO that is focused on decarbonization and on energy access. You flew in from London to join us. It's so great to have you here. And thanks, thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to it's be here. It's our pleasure. Kirsty Gogan, everybody. And let's meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Poneman. Uh, Dan, you have some government service related to this issue. You are former Deputy Secretary of Energy in the Obama administration. You're now President and CEO of a global energy company that is supplying enriched uranium for uh, commercial nuclear power plants. It is called Centris Energy. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. And of course, we have two debaters arguing against the resolution. Please first welcome Gregory Yatsko. Greg, also uh, a person with the government service in this issue, you are a former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, after which you wrote a book, the title of which was Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator, and you are now the founder of an energy company called Wind Future LLC. Greg, it's great to have you on Intelligence Squared U.S. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And let's meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Arjun Makajani. Arjun, longtime expert in this field. You're the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, and you're author of a book called Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, a roadmap for U.S. energy policy. You have spent decades studying nuclear disarmament and energy efficiency. It's great to have somebody like you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, our four debaters arguing on the resolution, it's time to expand nuclear power. Let so a reminder one more time to cast your votes for or against or undecided on the resolution by going to iq2us.org slash vote. We're going to lock it out in about a minute. Again, it's going to be the difference between that vote and the last vote that determines our winners. Let's move on to our debate. Let's start with round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Up speaking first for the resolution, 
Daniel, you can make your way to the lectern. It's time to expand nuclear power. Please welcome everyone. Dan Poneman, former Deputy Secretary of Energy. Thank you, John. Thank you. I'm going to start by asking a question. How many people here believe that climate change is a global environmental crisis that requires our best efforts to address? Wow. Uh, I would say that's a vast majority. I agree with you. Evidence supports your concern. We've just experienced the 10 hottest years in history of the planet. We are looking at a future of mid-century in which we could see 99% of our coral reefs gone that support 500 million people. Arctic sea ice in the summer gone. Hundreds of millions of people displaced. And what are we doing about it? We have a Paris Climate Agreement that pledges to get to 2 degrees centigrade global warming over pre-industrial levels, or better yet, 1.5 degrees. But in fact, we're way off track. If you took all of the pledges that the countries that signed up for the Paris Climate Agreement undertook to support that agreement and assumed they did everything they promised to do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you blow right past 2 degrees centigrade. You don't get close to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And of course, are governments ever on track with their pledges? Of course not. So here we are five years later, and two-thirds of the major emitters are already off track. So how are we going to get back on track? First, consider the scope of the problem and the urgency. By 2050, electricity consumption will increase by 100%. That's necessary to sustain the growth of the world and the prosperity of the people who live there. In that same period of time, scientists tell us we've got to cut carbon emissions from electricity production by 100%. Electricity is the easy one to solve before you get to transportation and building heat and agriculture. Now, I love renewables, and I was proud as Deputy Secretary of Energy to chair a credit review board that put $30 billion of loan guarantees to work and started the first utility-scale grid solar photovoltaic industry in this country that supported the largest wind farm in this country, that put the Tesla on the road, supported biorefineries and geothermal and storage. All great stuff. But guess what? If you did all that, it still doesn't get you to decarbonizing the electricity sector by 2050. Now, don't ask me if you go to the International Energy Agency or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change they will all tell you the only way to close that gap is by a significant expansion of nuclear power. Now, we've already heard some from Bill Nye, thank you, and we'll hear more about waste and radiation, etc. I'm going to focus just one moment on one of the problems that's a deep concern of many, the spread of nuclear weapons. And I'm here to tell you that nuclear weapons do not, have not historically spread through commercial nuclear power. To the contrary, I can tell you of a case when the Soviet Union broke up, I was privileged to be part of a team that negotiated the purchase of 500 metric tons of highly enriched uranium 
from the Soviet Union, the former Soviet arsenal, 20,000 weapons worth, and we blended it down to commercial reactor fuel, supplied one half of U.S. commercial nuclear requirements for 20 years. And since commercial nuclear is 20% of U.S. electricity, for 20 years, one in 10 light bulbs in America was lit up by a former nuclear weapon pointing at you. So don't accept easy bromides. Fear of nuclear power has killed many more people than nuclear power has killed. Consider Germany. After Fukushima, they closed eight reactors. Since that time, 1,100 people per year have lost their lives because of coal-fired pollution. The question presented then is, are we going to put everything we've got into this fight to prevent disaster to our planet? Or are we going to leave the most prodigious source of carbon-free energy in history on the table and hope for the best? That's why I say it is time to expand nuclear power. Thank you, Dan Poneman. Our next debater will be speaking against that very re resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Please welcome Arjun Makajani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. Ladies and gentlemen, Arjun Makajani. Thank you. Well, thank you for all your work on solar energy and storage and so on. You are very successful, and that'll be part of my story. We do need to eliminate carbon dioxide, no disagreement. We don't have a shortage of low CO2 sources of energy, but we have a shortage of two things in solving the climate crisis. We have a shortage of time, and we have a shortage of money. Nuclear energy is really bad for both. In 2005, there was a big announcement with fanfare around then of the nuclear renaissance. More than 30 reactor applications were made to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And as in the previous generation of nuclear, most of them were canceled. Only four started construction. Two of those four were canceled after billions of dollars of expenditures. The other two, being built in Georgia, are years and years behind schedule and billions and billions of dollars of cost overruns. We can't afford that kind of delay. We can't afford power plants that take 10 and 15 years to build. This, we have seen this scene before. In the first round of nuclear, almost as many reactors, about 100, were canceled as were built. The financial scene was so bad that Forbes, not known as an anti-nuclear group, Forbes said, and this is a quote, that nuclear power, quote, is the largest managerial disaster in business history. It is a disaster on a monumental scale. February 1985. That was the first round. What should we do now? Fortunately, as a result of a lot of good work in this country, Department of Energy, Germany, and other places, today, utility-scale solar and wind are cheaper than nuclear. $40 a megawatt hour for solar and wind, $155 
a megawatt hour. Did I make this up by somebody who doesn't like nuclear power? No. These numbers are published every year as estimates for new power plant by Lazard, Wall Street, also not known as an anti-nuclear group. So I'm giving you uh, bow tie credentials. You saw, saw the guy with the bow tie. The, so I'm giving you bow tie numbers. In reality, nuclear power tends to get more expensive as they get in. And solar and wind, the history is, they've gotten much, much cheaper. So of course, solar and wind are variable. So there's a delta between $40 and $155. You do need storage. You do need a smart grid. You need investments, and so on. So instead of saying, oh, you need everything, I actually did years of work to figure out what would it take, what would it cost, and how do you compare to business as usual. And I did it with actual data for the state in which I live, Maryland. I used the demand data, your heating, your cooling, your dishwasher, your refrigerator, hour by hour modeling. I have it in my computer in my hotel room down the street. I also got hour by hour data for wind. I got hour by hour data for solar. I added the smart grid, I added the storage, battery, five hours of storage. It's cheaper than business as usual, 10 to 20% cheaper. And since I finished my calculations, solar and wind are cheaper now than they were back then. They've, so twice it's gone bad with nuclear. We have the answers. So now we're told small modular reactors are going to come along because large reactors take too long and they're too expensive. And small modular reactors, we're going to do mass manufacturing. And because there'll be a supply chain at mass manufacturing, they'll be cheaper. Well, when you go from large to small, you lose something that's well-known called economies of scale. When you go to mass manufacturing, you also gain something. It's called the possibility of recalls. How are you going to recall a radioactive reactor that's now in the center of your electricity system? No answers. I seem to be the only one that's actually raised this question. I haven't gotten an answer yet. And these reactors are vulnerable to problems. Now you've got a costly reactor. It's not going to be cheaper than what existing reactors are. In fact, a recent report to the state of Maryland said that small modular reactors will likely be more expensive. Arjun, so, I'm sorry, I have to break in because yeah. your time is up. I will finish. This is a mirage. Thank you very much. <laughs> And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. It is time to expand nuclear power. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third, welcoming to the lectern our third debater. Please give a round of applause for Kirsty Gogan, co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. Thank you. My younger self would be shocked that I'm here on this stage today arguing in favor of this motion to expand nuclear energy. I've dedicated my life to working on environmental and social justice. After college, I was a grassroots environmental activist, planting trees, uh, boycotting flying, organizing protests against GMOs and cars and nuclear weapons and globalization. And I don't usually do debates. I'm more of a coalition builder. 
more interested in common ground than arguing. And yet, here I am because, frankly, so much is at stake. Changing my mind about nuclear energy felt like betraying my tribe. It was hard to admit that I was wrong, hard to be judged, even excluded by my friends, for challenging the environmental anti-nuclear touchstone. But climate change made me reevaluate nuclear energy, and it was a shock to find that I'd been wrong about the risks that I thought were real, about our chances of making a real dent in climate change without it. But despite 30 years of successfully building public and political support for action on climate change, we have not made a dent in the upward trajectory of emissions. In fact, incredibly, half of the emissions that are currently in the atmosphere today we've emitted in the past 30 years, since Al Gore published his first book on climate change. And now, according to the IPCC, We have another 30 years, just 30 more years, to fully decarbonize the whole of the global economy, not just the power sector, industry, heat, transport. Now, 2050 may seem like a distant future, but in 2050, my daughter will be the age that I am now. And meanwhile, today, humans live safer, longer, more productive, healthier, more secure lives than at any other time. And that prosperity, that modern life, depends on massive amounts of electricity, reliable energy. And yet, half the people in the world still lack access to enough energy. Many depend on dangerous smoky fuels for cooking and for lighting in their homes, and this lack of access to modern energy causes millions of deaths every year, disproportionately affecting women and children. In households without access to electricity, women can spend up to 35 hours a week just collecting fuel. So this isn't just an environmental issue. It's an ethical issue. It's a public health issue. It's a feminist issue. So not only do we have to replace the entire global fossil fuel infrastructure within those 30 years, but probably double or even triple it to meet rising global energy demand and bring modern energy services to all people. So in light of this, many organizations, including the Union of Concerned Scientists, the IPCC, the International Energy Agency, have started to change their stance on nuclear energy. And I looked again at the evidence, and I found that the facts didn't justify my opposition. And yeah, even taking into account you know, those famous accidents, nuclear energy is the safest form of electricity generation. In fact, coal kills way more people in a single day of normal operations than 60 years of global energy has, even including those three big accidents. In fact, for decades, Nuclear energy has been the, the single largest source of clean electricity generation in the United States and in Europe, and is recognized by the world's most credible authorities as being a critical part of our response to the climate emergency. So this isn't about nuclear versus renewables. The simple truth is actually that tackling climate change will be more expensive, more difficult, and more likely to fail if we exclude nuclear energy. Now, climate, okay, it's a complicated problem, but you know what? Mostly it's an energy problem. And broadly speaking, you can boil it down to a simple two-step strategy. So first of all, expand clean electricity generation and then electrify the hell out of everything. Some modern industrialized economies, they've already achieved the first step. You know what success looks like from a climate perspective? It looks like France and it looks like Sweden today. 
Sweden holds the record for the fastest and most complete clean electricity transition, completely phasing out fossil fuels. And you know how they did that? They did that by whilst growing their economy with some of the lowest energy bills in Europe. How did they do it? With the only proven real-world way that we know how. They did it with a combination of nuclear and renewables. But there's something else. As a humanitarian and environmentalist, the real appeal of nuclear energy is its incredible energy density, thousands of times more energy dense than coal, which means it can power whole civilizations with a tiny ecological footprint. And what about the waste? I used to worry about the waste, but it turns out that waste streams from nuclear energy are trivial compared to fossil combustion. Waste has not, will not, and does not cause harm to people and the environment. Kirsty, I'm sorry I have to jump in. Your time is up as well. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Kirsty goes on. And please welcome to his lecture and our final debater on the resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Here is Gregory Atsko, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's always nice to go last because you get to hear everybody's arguments. And um, although I have to say, I haven't heard much in the way of arguments. What, what we've heard a lot is what I like to call it's the unicorn nuclear industry. There's a lot of statements that were made by, by Kirsty, by Dan, about this impassioned need to deal with climate change. And I agree 100%. And in fact, what I actually worry about is we have a lot of people talking about nuclear in that way and talking as if nuclear is the thing that's going to solve this problem for us. And in fact, it's actually not. You didn't hear a lot of facts about the nuclear industry, about what it really takes to build nuclear power in the way that they're talking about. So let's talk about those facts. First of all, right now, today, and it's not just electricity that matters, it's energy, right? There's more to energy, there's more to what we use for energy than just electricity. And today, 4% of energy in the world is produced by nuclear power, okay? If we look at electricity, it's about 10, 11, 12%. Renewables are bigger than that in both cases, both for energy and electricity today. So renewables already have a head start, okay? But moreover, when you look at the biggest issues, they talked about 2050. 2050 is a very important date from the climate perspective. But more importantly is 2030. Most of the modeling shows that by 2030, we have to make significant reductions in our carbon footprint in the world. If you take a typical nuclear power plant today, and remember that 4% or that 10 or 11%, to get to a substantial amount of nuclear power tomorrow, we need to start building thousands of nuclear power plants in the world because it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years to build a nuclear power plant when you start from scratch. And that, that's, on the, that's on the conservative beneficial end. Could be anywhere from 15 to 20 years to do that. Okay, so we're talking about tomorrow starting to build over 1,000, 2, 3, 4, 5,000 nuclear power plants. And that's not just in countries like the U.S. or France that have existing nuclear power programs. It's places all over the world. Well, to do that, they can't just start from scratch, or they can't just start and magically bring out a wand and build a nuclear power plant. They need engineers, they need welders, they need people with experience dealing with this technology. And that takes another five, 10 years to build up that infrastructure and that, and that capacity to build, license, and operate nuclear power plants. And I know, I was the regulator of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the head regulator in the United States. That infrastructure does not come easy. We had over 4,000 people, or close to 4,000 people in my agency. And I would visit other countries that were desperate 
to have nuclear power programs, and that was what they came to us and said, can you help us build our infrastructure? So we could all agree today that this is a great thing, nuclear power is wonderful. But the practical reality is, we cannot build the amount of nuclear power plants we need in order to make a real dent in climate change in the next 10 to 15 years. But I worried about this for a long, long time, because I have two small children. I have a four-year-old daughter and a about-to-be seven-year-old son. And I worried about the future, and I've always been conflicted, having dealt with the Fukushima nuclear accident at the NRC. And I thought, my gosh, you know, I'm concerned about this technology, but I'm more concerned about climate change. And so I began to realize and look and learn and recognize that, in fact, the cheapest and fastest growing sources of clean energy in the world are renewables, hydro and renewables, what we call kind of the, when we say renewables, we think of wind and solar and, and geothermal and these kinds of things. Those are the fastest growing sources of energy. And Dan talked about Germany. Today, Germany generates 40% of its electricity from renewables, including hydro. The problems with people dying have nothing to do with renewables. They have to do with coal. It's coal that's killing people in Germany, and that coal use has actually gone down over the last 10 years, largely replaced by natural gas and renewables, which have gone in the last 10 to 15 years from about a few percent to 40% of the generation of electricity in Germany. And, the and nuclear has gone down. In the United States, nuclear power has been at about 20% of our electricity generation for decades. Right, this, if this is such a great technology, why hasn't it been doing all these wonderful beneficial things? Why hasn't it been eliminating coal deaths for the last 30, 40, 50 years? Because it's been impractical to, to build. We started out in this country with plans to build over 200 nuclear power plants. That got whittled down to, to 100 or so. When I was chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, there were 104 operating reactors. Today, we have fewer than that. So it's going in the wrong direction, and the prices are going up. Renewables are going in the right direction, and their prices are going down. So we don't have to make this choice between the difficult challenges of nuclear power versus climate change. We have better alternatives that exist today that we can deploy in the time frame that we need to actually make a real dent in climate change in the next 10 years, not in the next 30 or 40 years. So remember, when you hear about the nuclear industry, Think about the unicorn. That's the industry that they're talking about. It's a unicorn industry. It's a wonderful, beautiful, mythical creature, and it doesn't exist in the real world. Thank you, Greg Yatsko. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is, it's time to expand nuclear power. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly. They also take questions from me and a little bit later on from you, members of our live audience here in New York City. Our resolution is it's time to expand nuclear power. We've heard a range of arguments uh, between the two sides. We've also heard some common ground. Let's, let's stake out what that is first of all. Both sides agree that climate change is real and urgent, that time is running out. They agree that the world's need for electricity consumption is going up perhaps by as much as 100% in a short period of time. They agree that renewables have a place and that renew increasing renewable energy is a worthy goal. They agree that coal is very, very damaging to human health. Where they disagree is on the question of whether nuclear is too dangerous to be the solution to climate change as part of the mix or whether 
it is too expensive or too impractical. The team arguing for the resolution uh, are arguing that that is not the case at all. They say that the, with the clock ticking, the only way to get the situation dealt with quickly, quickly enough, would be through nuclear power. They say that nuclear is actually the only option. Um, and uh, they say it has to be a critical part of the whole solution. They cite examples of nations like Sweden and France, which they say have already figured this out. Um, they also make the argument that fear of nuclear power is actually more dangerous than nuclear power itself, that the issue, we were just getting to that in Kirstie's opening, that the issue of, uh, of waste is somewhat exaggerated and the harm is somewhat exaggerated. I'd like to get into more into that into the conversation itself. The team arguing against the resolution, Arjun Makajani and Gregory Yatsik, um, they also argue that time is running out, but they say that in the issue of dealing with climate change by the, in the next 10 years, that time, with time and money short, renewables actually beat out nuclear. They say that, uh, that uh, nuclear power plants have proven again and again to be too expensive and to take too long to get up and running. They say that, in fact, uh, renewables are getting cheaper and spreading, and um, they basically make the argument that the choice between the danger of nuclear power and a carbon-free world is, is a false choice, that we have other options. So there is a lot there um, that for us to dig into. I want to go to the side arguing for the resolution and take a piece of the argument I heard from your opponents. I'll start with either of you would like to go for it first. Your opponents have made the argument, countering your argument that nuclear is the only solution, by saying, look at the record of the last 20 years. Nuclear power plants just can't get off the ground. We're, we're decreasing the number of nuclear power plants. They take too long. They're, I'm not sure if they're arguing for const practical construction reasons, design reasons, bureaucratic reasons, but that it's in a world where they say we're going to need thousands of nuclear power plants in a short period of time to be the solution, that it's just incredibly impractical. Who would like to take that? Uh, yeah, so nuclear uh, energy is is proven uh, over and over as being absolutely the fastest way to um, add clean electricity generation per capita. Um, and, you know, the perception right now in Europe and in the United States around um, the idea that nuclear is too expensive and too slow to make a meaningful contribution towards solving climate change is informed by, honestly, what's a really small sample of first-of-a-kind, first-of-a-generation projects um, and they're not re representative of the vast majority of nuclear plants that are being built in the world today. You're referring to plants that were built 30, 40 years ago? No, I mean, I'm talking about the, the, the projects that are being, still being built today in Europe and in the United States, in the UK and, uh, and here in, in the United States, um, uh, that give the impression that nuclear is expensive and slow. But actually, those projects are um, first of a generation plants that have to be licensed with an inexperienced regulator, you have to qualify the supply chain, you have to train the labor force, you have to establish your siting process, and then you know you have to, you have to build it for the first time. Um, we would expect to see at least a 30% reduction from the first of a kind to the second of a kind, and then further cost reductions um, with subsequent plants. And the way that we, we form that impression is through experience um, of programs being very successfully delivering uh, projects in a very time-efficient way that have cost-competitive, not only with fossil fuels, but also with renewables. So to boil it down, you're saying the more we build, if we were to start building them, the more we build, the faster we would get at it. It would get better. The okay. first one you build is difficult and expensive, and after that, it gets more. Let me take that logic easier. to your opponents. Well, I mean, again, we can go to facts. I mean, I was the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission when we licensed the Vogel and Summer plants in the United States, which were 
to a certain extent, first of a kind. Uh, the industry was well aware that they had to meet costs and, and, um, and, and schedule uh, timelines. And they reassured, assured me of that repeatedly because they knew that Wall Street would not fund additional projects because there had been a history of cost delays and cost over and throughout the entire uh, U.S. nuclear industry and really in, in many places in the world. That one of those projects is now over five years behind schedule and, and over $15 billion over budget. And, and that was not a new project. I mean, it was a new project, but this was not with an untrained regulator. This was not with an untrained workforce. The industry had been doing plant upgrades and other major uh, modifications to plant in order to train that workforce to be prepared to do it. Uh, they simply mismanaged the project, which is, which is typical of, of how the nuclear... But is it inevitable? Were... I mean, your opponents are saying that's not inevitable and that with experience, that process could get more streamlined. Well, I mean, they've been saying that for 30 years. I mean, that's nothing new in the nuclear industry. So, you know, we can continue to make those statements. And again, perhaps in 15 years, we'll find out that it's, it's not true. Dan? You know, Mark Twain once said, cat who sits on a hot stove lid will not sit on a hot stove lid again but he also will not sit on a cold stove lid. So let's not learn the wrong lessons from history. When we got going as a country, we built 104 nuclear units. Those units produce electricity at three cents per kilowatt hour. That's cheap, that's cheap. And when you add into the cost of solar and wind, which I love, transmission and the backup power you're gonna need, it's very competitive. So I think it's critical to realize when you do get this kind of momentum, what you can do in a scarce decade. One example will suffice. Kirsty just came back from Sweden. In their biggest year of building nuclear power, they added 600 kilowatt hours per person per year. Germany, in its most ambitious decade of wind and solar expansion, added 120 kilowatt hours per person per year. France. 450 kilowatt hours per person per year. These are facts. California, 70 kilowatt hours. And that's what you have to measure. It's not just the installed capacity. So when Greg talks about the installed capacity for wind and solar being expanding, that's great. But since the wind does not blow and the sun does not shine, you have to divide that by how often it's available. Let me bring in Arjun. Yeah. So this idea that we're building completely new power plants, first of a kind, is a little stretches the truth. Um, these power plants, the AB1000 that is being built, were supposed to be streamlined, learn lessons from Three Mile Island, safer, faster. The regulator said, we've streamlined the regulatory process, we'll give you a license for the site and the operating license all at the same time, so it'll be faster, cheaper, and better. As it turned out, it hasn't been faster, it hasn't been cheaper, it hasn't been better. The fundamental design of the nuclear power plants that are being built here in France and in Finland and so on has not changed. They're all light water reactors, they all boil water either directly or through steam generators, and they all run a steam turbine. They all have the same kind of controls with control rods. So there's nothing fundamental different fundamentally different about this technology. It is the same technology that was actually supposed to be better. Now, I'm not a fan of Wall Street, but I do think that they do look to the dollars and cents and what's going to fatten their pockets. And there was a reason that they didn't finance it. They got burned the first time around. Think why Forbes would take on a really big business like nuclear, supported by the government with free insurance, essentially free insurance, on your back and my back if there's an accident, a major accident, 
and say this was the largest managerial disaster in business history. Let me and they didn't fund the second round. Let's bring in Kirsty. Yeah, so I sometimes make a joke that the next time I convert my loft, it's going to be like really efficiently done. <laughs> Unfortunately, I won't have that opportunity, but we do have that opportunity to, to learn uh, from the experience of building the first of a kind. And, you know, the first of a kind costs of licensing and training and qualifying the supply chain, they don't have to be spent again. Um, so my question really is, you know, why wouldn't we apply the same effort and resources to driving down cost and driving up rates of deployment for all low-carbon technologies? Why would we just apply that learning to drive down the costs why, of let's take that solar? Question. Because actually all that, the really important thing that matters, sorry, just to finish sure. the point, is the overall performance of the system. Actually, what we really care about is that our energy system is clean and reliable and affordable and flexible and ultimately cheap. And what we know, what the evidence is very clear on, is that the best way to deliver the performance of that system and the low-cost system and the clean system is through a combination of nuclear and renewables. And so why wouldn't we apply the same effort to driving down the cost as we have done successfully for wind and solar? Well, again, I, I think, again, we're, we're trying to create an impression that the nuclear industry is this brand new industry that's just doing all these things. It's been around for 60 years. We, in fact, have been doing all those things. They just haven't worked. So you have to... We've been operating the plants for 60 years, and in some ways that's a great I'm, I'm asset sorry. that they last so long. But on the other hand, we I'm end sorry, up you, you talked about specific, the yeah, capability you about of building new projects, which is the thing right, that you, I'm talking about, which talk we haven't done for more than two decades okay. in this country. Right. I, you said, why wouldn't we put those efforts to driving down costs? The industry did put significant resources and effort into driving down costs. In the United States, for instance, the industry created trade schools that were specifically designed to, tra to train the workers yeah. to build the plants in Georgia, to build the plants in South Carolina. And the plants are still wildly over budget and, and, and over cost. So the industry has been spending money on those things. It's just not worked. Well, it has and in the past. It's very successfully driven let, down costs. Let me bring Dan in. It's, yeah. Ah. <laughs> I think it's important to recognize that after Three Mile Island, we had a 30-year hiatus a 30-year hiatus in which our talent pool dissipated, in which our supply ch uh, pool um, atrophied. And therefore, it's not actually accurate to say we've been doing this continuously ever since. Korea is building reactors. Russia is building reactors. Korea is finishing four reactors right now in the United Arab Emirates. China is building reactors. They're all doing it cheaper and faster. I refuse to believe that American ingenuity and supply chain and talent pool is not up to the task. We just have to apply ourselves. Dan, Dan and Arjun, um, I had expected to hear you make more. You're making the economic and time and practicality argument. You haven't talked about the danger argument at all. I'm curious why you haven't said that nuclear is dangerous. Is it because you actually don't think it's? You don't think that that's actually the case? I, you know, I, I don't think it matters uh, because you know if you have a hundred dollars to go do carbon-free electricity, you can build far more with renewables than you can with nuclear, and you can do it faster. So it, it, it doesn't matter that you have all these external issues about safety. Uh, That's going back to your saying the choice is not necessary. The choice is not necessary, exactly right. You, you know, we, we don't have, you know, in many ways, this isn't really a debate anymore. I'll, I'll tell you a story, I wrote a book, and as part don't, of my- Don't, don't tell me that. Here. <laughs> well, I'll just say, I, I wanted to give a, a talk to a group of finance people in the, in the energy industry, and, uh, 
and, and they said, you wrote a book, you're promoting your book, we'd love to have you come speak, but we don't really have anything for you to talk about because our people know that nuclear is a dead industry. So you know, now the industry is promoting this idea of climate change as a way to try and revive the industry. But in the, in the marketplace, it's not a debate at all. The, the, the debate's over. And renewables have won. Let me, let me bring that to Dan. I respectfully disagree. Renewables are great. And you can introduce them to the grid 10, 20, maybe even up to 30%, and the grid can absorb it. But after that, you have to compensate, and you have to have backup power, which is usually fossil-fueled. So you're not getting the carbon-free benefit. And the, uh, in addition, if you're not going to fuel it with carbon-fueled sources, you're going to need batteries. Just one more point no, here. Go for it. Varun Savaram in Taming the Sun, a brilliant analyst of the solar industry, says that for batteries to support wind and solar providing 100%, as our opponents would have you believe, would require 8 to 16 weeks of battery storage in the United States. We have 43 minutes of it now. And we don't have the transmission lines, which people aren't too keen to build in their back line, the backyards either. And so I think we have to put into perspective that you do need, as Kirsty said, a system. And renewables can be a great part of it but they need to be supported by flexible, dispatchable power, and that's what nuclear provides. So that, well, that was a question I wanted to get to. So, so th there are times when the wind doesn't blow, there are times when the sun's not out, and there's not, not gonna be juice from the system. You need something else. If it's not nuclear, it seems very likely you're gonna fire up a gas plant and you're back to carbon emissions again. So they're arguing, let nuclear be that thing that steps into the well, gap. What about that? Well, I hope that Mr. Poneman was listening because that's exactly what I laid out. We're not talking about weeks of storage. This is a straw man that is frequently put up. If you have solar, you need weeks and weeks of storage and lots of batteries. Agreed, if you just have solar and batteries, it's not going to work. That's why when I laid it out for you, I said, well, I did the hour by hour calculation. Let me give you the numbers. For 68% of the hours, the load is directly and fully met by solar and wind, by renewables, a little bit of hydro. If you have five hours of annual average load of battery storage, now this is directly from hour by hour modeling, just five hours, you get to 96%. The other 4% of the hours is, is a lot of hours in the year. You don't want to be electric, you don't, but you cannot meet it just by adding batteries. So that's why you have a smart grid. Today we have a dumb grid. The amount of, the amount of intelligence in the switches communicating between your house and the electricity system can all be fit, fit, fitted onto a $10 flash drive. That's how dumb the grid is. You have to have two-way communications. If you have a smart grid, demand response, do you care when the heating element in your frost-free refrigerator in the freezer comes on? Okay, but that can be part me, of a smart let take, grid. Let me, are you persuaded? Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of not about whether I'm persuaded. It's, it's really about you know, what all of the kind of best, most credible analysis is telling us. So um, if you look at the International Energy Agency or you know, any number of other organizations, including the EIA here in the US, we see a really frightening amount of fossil fuels still on the system, even with very aggressive 
build-outs, even with very ambitious and very successful build-outs of renewable energy up to mid-century, up to the 2050 point, we see around 60% of fossil fuels still on the system. We're working right now with the National Renewable Energy Lab um, as part of the Clean Energy Ministerial, which is the annual gathering of ministers that look at how on earth they're going to deliver against the Paris agreements. We're working with NREL with their scenarios for very ambitious renewable build-outs, and we see a lot of gas still on the system. And but what we've been doing with them is modeling what happens when you add nuclear in? So this isn't about renewables or nuclear. This is about renewables and. That's actually but, going to But your to opponents are arguing that there is a way to do renewables without nuclear and still be yeah, carbon-free so by, 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 by using technology and artificial intelligence and smart grids. It depends on, the, smart on grids. where you are. Um, and, you know, you can uh, concoct scenarios that are technically feasible. However, um, they're what we would consider high risk. And there's a real question here about whether that's what do you a mean risk by high risk that we're prepared to take. A risk associated with narrowing your options very severely. NREL have indicated to us that to achieve the sort of 100% renewables um, build out in the United States, you'd need to be building three 1,000 mile transmission lines per year, every year for 30 years. Now, just to give you an idea of what that means, we haven't been able to build one of those in 15 years of trying. Now, that is a very high-risk strategy as far as I'm concerned. And f I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it's too high a risk. It's not a risk I'm it's, prepared it's, to take, and it's certainly not a risk well, that my daughter... It seems you're both making the same argument against your opponents that without sufficient effort and intel intelligence and planning, the, the other guy's solution can't work. So there... Well, let, me just say, let, me just say, let me just say, again, you know, we can look at modeling. Modeling isn't what matters. What matters is what's happening in the marketplace today. There is nothing stopping nuclear from doing all the things that Dan and Kirsty are saying. Right? There, there's no, there's, this is not a new technology that has laws against it that say you cannot build nuclear power plants. In fact, it's a very established technology that has proven over decades to be too costly and too, too long to deploy. There's nothing that, you know, the renewables are the new technology. But why is it working in Sweden and why is it working in France and why are the South Koreans building? It, it, it works, but it's been consistent in that because renewables are working in those places too. 65% of Sweden's electricity comes from But you're from saying the market is... Okay, go on, go on, sorry. It, it, it's, not lar it's not dominated by nuclear, and it's a small country. France is currently at 80% nuclear, and their intention is to go down over time. So, you know, we're, as I said, what we need if we want to do nuclear is today to start building thousands of nuclear power plants in the world. Today or tomorrow. We can, Let's do that. You know, <laughs> and, Dan, I want to give you the last yeah. word on this, and then I want to go to all right, And I, I would just say, okay. let's do it, Dan, but, but the industry can't. Okay. First and of that's all, that's the problem. The rule of holes is when you find yourself at the bottom of a deep hole, stop digging. Okay? So it's not just about building thousands. That, with all due respect, is a red herring. First, we've got to stop shutting down perfectly well-operating plants, point one. Point two, it's mythological to say that it's all a free market and it's just not making it. If there were a burden on carbon, if nuclear were compensated for its unique attributes of always-on response, think Hurricane Harvey, people are alive today who would be dead without the nuclear power plants that kept running. 
I got plenty of calls at the Department of Energy from Minnesota and Wisconsin congressmen during the polar vortex when the coal plants and the gas plants shut down and nuclear kept running. So if the market actually appreciated the virtues of nuclear, the uh, fight would be far fairer. That was 2014. I think we have short memories, but it got really, really cold. January 2014. Last point. Greg, properly focus on facts. In 2011, California got 53% of its power from clean sources, and then it pushed solar and wind a lot over the last seven years. And after seven years' effort in 2018, they were still stuck at 53%. Because instead of pushing out carbon, it pushed out, it didn't push out, but it was replacing hydro and nuclear. We have to get to zero. You don't get to zero by staying even or growing our carbon emissions. I'd like to go to audience questions. The way it would work, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. A microphone will be brought to you if you could stand up and tell us your name. And then your first name is good enough. And then uh, there's somebody down the front row I'm going to go to first, if I can bring Mike down. And then if you can tell us your first name and then ask a very short, tight, perfect question. <laughs> Here comes uh, on your left-hand side. Gentleman in the suit. Could you stand up so they can find you? Thanks. Hi, my name is Tom. Um, my question is, I've heard about this in the context of energy, in the context of environment, even feminism. Uh, my question is, I haven't heard anything about healthcare. And one of the things with nuclear is there is an aspect of healthcare. If you look at actinium-225, um, PSMA, if you Google search images of that, you'll see patients who go from cancer to no cancer. So the question is, this is something that's derived as a fission product. It's, it's derived from nuclear waste. So the question is, how does this fit in to the model of reducing the amount of nuclear energy? Um, in, in another context, there's, there's technesium-99, wait, so wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm sorry, you're, you're being more technical than I can keep up with. <laughs> so, I'm just so, not that smart. Uh, but what are you, when you're saying in the context of healthcare, can you narrow that down? Because okay. I'll have to pass on shortly. So, so the, go for it again. The question is, um, there are isotopes that are derived from nuclear power through fission products that are used in nuclear medicine. These are necessary for the field. How do you derive these without expansion of nuclear power? Okay, so my question, if I can refocus it, is nuclear power actually good for practice of certain kinds of medicine? In other words, we, if we shut down nuclear power plants, we wouldn't be able to do that kind of medicine. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Is that, is that the question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how do you su no, adequately no, supply these isotopes? Yes, okay. I agree. We should expand nuclear energy. Well, that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that question would be directed at us. Uh, it's going to come well, back to you. Yeah. Because we need uh, actually to build, urgently build, more nuclear reactors to produce okay. uh, nuclear material. That's well, for, for, nu for nuclear medicine, for I, things like prognosis and cancer treatment. That's absolutely right. All of our questions well, well, will I'm go to both sides. Let me take our for, for, for Nuclear isotopes for medicine are not produced in nuclear power reactors. They're mostly produced in nuclear research reactors, which are very small, and you don't need, a, need very many. The value of isotopes which are used in medicine, and none of us would argue that they shouldn't be, um, is very, very great. It's not like four cents a kilowatt hour, which is energy. 
You have to produce energy cheaply for the economy to run. Uh, nuclear isotopes can be very expensive because healthcare is expensive. You okay. can make it cheaper. Research reactors, nobody's arguing that we shouldn't be making nuclear isotopes. You need a couple of research reactors. You can make them in accelerators. There are a lot of ways I, to make isotopes without making power. In I fact, think, we don't make... I think we've dealt with that. <laughs> Brett Sweater, if you could stand up. Yeah, no, no, I, I want to get the facts out, but I think we got them, so thank you. Go ahead. Uh. Hi, I'm Orly. My question is inspired by the research being done on perovskites. On so, what? So, uh, now that nuclear oh, I'm power, sorry, the research done on what? Perovskites. I don't mm -hmm. know what that is. So, yeah. basically, my question Where's is... Where's Bill Nye? Help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know about it. So, basically, my question is, nuclear energy is clean. Let's say, hypothetically, the fastest and most cost-effective way to capitalize on that is a less than clean construction process to get it off the ground? How do you reconcile a clean source of energy with a less than clean process to get to it? Yeah, Dan. I, I really don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I, think, I think what you're getting at is to build a nuclear power plant, I, you have to create some dirt, right? It's, a, the, the, yeah. it's an environmental impact to building these plants. Yeah. Okay. And do you mean dirty there, as in carbon emissions? You know, like the 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 can I process just, of construction. The process of construction. Right. Because yeah. So I mean, the full life cycle costs are included in um, the everything from the mining through to the operation, the construction, and then ultimately decommissioning the plant. All of that should be represented fully for all uh, when we're evaluating the environmental impact of all energy technologies. Right. And but even taking all of that into account today, with conventional construction methods, nuclear energy performs extremely well on any conservation metric that you care to mention, as well as a climate metric. Okay, so, we're th th so you were asking about a broader environmental impact than carbon, and I think the answer is that, that taking all that into account, it's still, you're saying it's an efficient response Be to the carbon. Yeah, because of the energy density and the lifetime. Would the other side like to respond, or can we go to another question? I can go to that. Okay. Sir, if you can tell us your name. Hi there, my, my name's Chris. Chris, um, uh, Chris as in Chris Anderson, who founded TED Talks. Well, kind of. Well, didn't, didn't welcome to... Uh, <laughs> um, welcome. Re really interesting debate. I mean, I'm surprised at the level of agreement that it's not been a debate about safety primarily. It's, it's really a debate about economics. Yeah. Uh, two different versions. And it would help me to have each of you address this from the point of view of what the world needs to do by 2050. You've both got a vision for the grid that the world needs, the energy solution. Not the U a lot of the conversation has been about the US. Th model this for the world. On the one hand, a grid using uh, nuclear power and renewables in the right mix that you like. If to build out, basically what I've heard you say is at least 2x what fossil fuels are currently delivering, what is the cost that the world is going to have to invest over the next 30 years? And on the other side, oh and by the way, um, it, on the other side, if we just go the renewables route, you have to include obviously the cost of all these batteries and so yeah. forth. What, what is, what are, what are the, how much difference are we talking about? Or do you each have an approximate number there? Because I think 
we can well, get lost me, in the detail. We want to know what the overall sure. math is. Thank you. Let's uh, yeah. let Dan take yeah. that on one side and one of you from the other side. So, so it's a great question. Life is full of compared to what's. And I think what you have to look at, I, I can't give you an integer of a sum certain of it's going to cost X. Okay. But what I can tell you is that the MIT researchers who have analyzed this will tell you that if you try to get all the way there with only renewables, it will cost you 60% more. And that's conservative. And if something's more expensive, you buy less of it. And if you buy less of it, it's going to be slower. And then we're going to blow past 2050. So all those massive investments that Kirsty was talking about in, in long-distance transmission lines, which they just closed down a seven-year effort to build one from Oklahoma to the southeast, all of that backup power that you're going to have to build to back up the uh, 90 days in Texas when you don't have any wind, that's going to be enormously expensive. And if you want to do it all with solar and wind, you're going to have to so massively overbuild on that side. You're going to be paying people, as is now happening in California, sending electricity to Arizona, when you have got too much power on the grid and you can't use it. And so it's much more expensive. The cheap way to get the job done is by nuclear supplementing renewables. Other side? I mean, oh. Well, so I actually did the calculation. For year, it took four years. When you compare the capital investment in renewables compared to business as usual, the capital investment is comparable. Where, so you don't come out ahead one way or another going this way or that way. Where you come out ahead is when you have solar and wind, the operating maintenance costs are very low, and you have no fuel costs. You have zero fuel costs. So why is it cheaper? Because after you take into account, and you can't do it with batteries and solar and wind alone, you do have to have a smart grid. So we have to change out our infrastructure. Do we need thousands of miles of new transmission lines? No. In fact, if you want, as you know, in New York City, just down the street here across the bridge, they did not build a new power plant after Hurricane Sandy they decided to do solar and storage because a local distributed system would not have been down for a whole week after Hurricane Sandy. If you want resilience, we have to change the model of the electricity sector, even if climate, uh, you know, even if CO2 were not a problem, just the intense storms and the severity of what we're experiencing, and that we cannot suffer electricity disruption for a week, that would lead you to solar and wind and storage and flexible and smart, uh, smart grids and electrified transport. Okay, I'm going to jump in. Okay. Kirstie, can you give 30 seconds on this? Let me just try and answer the question, right? So we've got 30 years to make it or 30 years to break it. That's the situation. So we just published an article recently called uh, All of Our Climate Solutions Need to Be Impossible Burgers. And the idea behind that is that uh, when I was starting my pro-nuclear environmental NGO, someone was giving me advice and he said, you know what, you think nuclear is controversial? Try meat. Because actually the number one thing that an individual can do to reduce their, their personal carbon footprint is to eat less meat. And no politician wants to tell anybody to eat less meat, let me tell you. And then the Impossible Burger came along and now it's saturated 
saturated the market. It's available in every Burger King. And it's just, it's, it's cost uh, equivalent. It's tasty. It's still junk food. Everybody loves it. And we've kind of cut through the problem. So we need all of our climate solutions to be like that. And the reason that I advocate for nuclear energy is not just because it's a, just about the power sector, because actually what we haven't talked about today is that this is the whole economy. That's heat and industry and transport and shipping and aviation. And frankly, we cannot base our climate mitigation strategies on behavior change or using less energy. What we need is cheap substitutes. And nuclear technology is uniquely suited to produce those clean synthetic drop-in fuels that we can use in airplanes and we can use in ships because it's got a tiny environmental footprint, it's scalable, and it produces high-temperature heat. And guess what? We can use that high-temperature heat so long as it's cheap enough to make hydrogen and to make other carbon-based fuels so that we can switch out diesel, we can switch out gas. Okay. Yeah, let me just say... Wait, wait. I, I, and we well, can do it let me, just say, let me just say... I had said 30 seconds. I'm sorry. I'm the, you do 15? Yeah, the big, it's very, very short. The big element of what Kirsty just said is if it's cheap enough, it's not. So you can generate high-temperature fluids cheap. with solar. You can, you can do the same kinds of things. But just to get to Chris's point very briefly. Let's go up to the, you, you finished, I just want to get the next one teed up. We also have to think about this deployment. We're not just talking about deploying in, in Germany, in the United States. We're talking about rural India. What is a good solution in rural India? Well, a good solution in rural India is solar. They've done a tremendous amount of solar right now. So, and these are, these are solutions that are happening today. Meanwhile, India struggles with building out its renewable, pro or its nuclear program. So the practical solutions that actually work in much of the world are not large power plants. It's distributed power that can be rapidly deployed without a lot of technical capability and without a lot of, of infrastructure. Okay, let's and go that's to the better question solution in the, in for the back most of there. the world. Up at the top row, there's a gentleman standing up. Please make this a great question because it might be our last one. <laughs> Well, I do want to talk about Fukushima. In addition to the technical aspects of the meltdown, uh, subsequent reporting uh, uncovered just an industry that had become laden with cronyism and decay and entropy and rot. Um, but that's also true of a lot of other human So what's endeavors. your question? So is there something about the <laughs> nuclear industry? Is the nuclear industry just worse in those aspects than the renewable industry? Because it's a human endeavor. And should we just not put our faith in these human systems that is, we call this nuclear industry okay. that has proven fallible? Uh, let me take that question to either Dan or... I think that's like a big, big softball to you guys. So, <laughs> so I'm going to let this side respond to it and maybe get in one more question. Well, I'll... I'll, I'll and it's been somewhat what? hinted at that it's a, it's a very problematic business, is what your opponents have been saying, and okay. the, the questioner is putting you know, an even moral spin on it. Human nature is, is a, a constant. I will tell you, having worked in and around this business for 45 years, I have found people of extraordinary integrity. I know of no other industry that internalizes all of its costs. You know, the other industries have lots of waste. We account for the waste. We contain the waste. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there's uh, infallibility in any industry. I think human nature is human nature. What I can tell you is we have to keep our eye on the ball. And the fact of the matter is, that was a tragic earthquake and tsunami, killed 18,000 people, but that wasn't from the nuclear. They just recorded their first nuclear fatality in 2018. Nobody died in Three Mile Island. 57 people died out of Chernobyl, and maybe, as Bill Nye said, maybe up to 4,000 over life. 
we are trying to save the planet. Now, I'm all for going against corruption whenever and wherever you can find it. Is there arrogance? Yes. Is there sclerotic thinking? Yes. Go after it. But please don't sacrifice the planet in the process because we need carbon-free energy. There's some mythology in what you've just said. There's quite a bit of mythology in what you've just said. We account for the waste and contain the waste. You tell that to the Navajo people of this country. You, where the uranium was mined, there are more than 200 million tons of uranium mine waste, a large part of them in Navajo country, and still not remediated. They still don't have clean, clean water, and they still live in radon-contaminated houses, many of them. There are, two, there are more than 200 million tons of milled tailings, which have thorium-230, which is a byproduct, waste byproduct of uranium, which goes into the fuel. There's 20 tons of waste at the reactor. But e behind every ton of waste, there's hundreds or even thousands of tons of uranium mining and milling waste, both of which are radioactive. And we import most of the fuel. So Argent, we're damaging Argent, Argent, other countries Argent, as what, well. So, so what is the bottom line on, on that horror that you describe in re relation to the question before us. Are you saying that that is endemic, it's unavoidable, it's gonna be repeated, that that's just the way the business is always gonna be? Well, or uranium mining is, uh, is unavoidable in the uranium business. If you, if you want nuclear fuel, okay. you have to do uranium John, mining. I wanna take it to this Or you have yeah. to separate well, plutonium. Or, or, very quickly, Kirstie, very quickly. Well, can I just please. say? Okay. If you took all of the waste generated from the beginning of the US commercial nuclear industry, it would, fill one football field 10 yards deep. That's it. From coal, it would reach up to the space station. You take all the nuclear waste that would satisfy your energy requirements for your lifetime, it would fit in a soda can. So we have to put this in the context of the scale. We know how to contain it. We've seen geologic formations that have done it. The Finns have figured out how to do it. The Swedes ended up with two communities competing for the opportunity to host a repository. This is a solvable problem. I, I Can I facts don't offer penetrate. Two. Well, the, well, I just say the, the original question had to do, I think, with, with, with accents and with the nuclear industry. And I think, one, again, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that if we do dramatically increase the amount of nuclear power plants we have in the world, we will increase the frequency of accidents. So accident frequency, because they, they, are, they are a largely unavoidable uh, scenario. So we will get to a point in which, if we're dramatically increasing reactors, we're talking about accidents maybe happening every year, every two years, every five years. Now, all of those accidents may not require significant health effects, but they are going to affect the industry. They're going to affect the energy generation. And all we have to do is look to what happened in Japan. After the accident in Japan, Japan shut down its entire nuclear fleet because they had to do safety checks on those reactors. And what happened is they turned to fossil fuels and their emissions went up. So their solution was dramatic increases in energy efficiency and a build down of solar power in about five years where they dramatically increased that. So now they have replaced that nuclear generation with efficiency, conservation, and solar and in fact, their emissions are now back down to lower than they were before their nuclear program had its catastrophic accident. And to put it in perspective, the cost of that accident is pegged at several hundred billion dollars. Several hundred billion dollars. Right, let me let the we other, don't have the time and the money. Let me let the other side have a 
I, I might not be able to get to your question depending on how long Kirsty takes. Uh, okay, so two sentences. So Fukushima showed that nuclear going wrong is better than coal going right. And the World Health Organization reports, which I've read in detail around the Chernobyl and the Fukushima accidents, have told us that the by far greatest public health impact caused by both of those act accidents was fear of radiation, not radiation itself. And that is all to do with how we responded. Do you have a question that you can put in one sentence now? Yes. Um, you mentioned that what we need to do is make, is make it cheap, right? That's the problem. Uh -oh. So my question is, is it possible to make it cheap in a very few amount of sentences? How? And if it's not possible, uh, why? Okay, why that was great. Okay, can I? <laughs> well done. <laughs> Man, there's a whole new generation coming along, and they are going to build reactors that are standardized in design. One of the reasons why these reactors have gone so far over cost and over schedule is because they're stick built. They don't finish designing the reactor before they start building it. There's common sense things that can and should be done. I was responsible for project management. We, have, we can have contracts that align the interests of the contractor with the interests of the ratepayer, which we have not had. We can have smaller factory built modules that as is happening in the LNG industry, will be then shipped to the site, standardized sites, so you're not doing a different bespoke design every single time. We just gotta do things smarter, better, and cheaper, and I, again, refuse to believe that we don't have the ingenuity to do it. Other side. I mean, the industry told me that 10 years ago. Uh, they told me that 15 years ago, they told me that 20 years ago. So it's, it's, it's a common talking point that the next generation of reactors is going to be better the reactors, in specifically in the United States, were promised to be better. They failed dramatically. So, you know, again, it's a unicorn. Let, let me answer. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Arjun, I've got to wrap it up. Why can't I'm sorry, that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is, it's time to expand nuclear power. I have one piece of business that I meant to do during the question and answer section, so I just have to say this. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Again, Arjun, I'm sorry I had to cut you off, but the evening is growing long and we want to move on to round three. Let's begin round three. Round three are closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. They will stand again at the lectern for this and making his closing statement for the resolution. Please welcome again Dan Poneman, former Deputy Secretary of Energy. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thank you to our esteemed opponents for a lively debate. On November 14, 1938, President Roosevelt convened a meeting at the White House, and he was briefed on the impending threat from Nazi Germany. Now remember, after I grew up as a boy, loving the sea, loving sailing, building model ships, he became Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Wilson. He had communicated with Alfred Thayer Mann on the superiority of naval power and what could be done strategically for our country with naval power alone. And yet that day, facing an existential threat of a rather different character, he authorized a massive expansion, something they said could not be done, of American air power 
1939, we produced 3,000 airplanes. By 1945, we had produced 300,000 airplanes and won World War II. Now, conceivably, FDR could have said, you know what, I don't think so. I think Admiral Mann was right. We can do this with sea power alone. And maybe we could have won World War II without that air power. What do you think? Maybe, maybe not. But he decided to go for it. And the question he had to ask is, did he want to risk the answer to an existential threat on the hope and the prayer that his preferred strategic outcome would be achieved with naval power alone? He did not. I think we're in an existential moment today. And the question is, are we going to leave the most prodigious source of carbon-free energy known to humanity outside of the realm of what we're going to try? It may work, it may not work. I think we have no choice but to throw everything we can at the climate problem, including nuclear. And that's why I ask you for your vote that now is the time to expand nuclear power. Thank you, Dan Poneman. That is the resolution, and here to make his closing statement against the resolution, here is Arjun Makajani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. I'm going to answer your question. The reason you can't make nuclear cheap is because in an in elect electric power plant, the nuclear reactor is only the boiler. 80, 90% of the costs are downstream, and the nuclear boiler is much more expensive than the coal boiler by design. Okay, now, let me tell you a story. How did nuclear power start as an idea that might be cheap and economical? It started with the Adams for Peace speech. It is a fig leaf on the horror of the thermonuclear bomb. President Eisenhower didn't want to make a gloom and doom speech, and he said, give me something good to say, and they gave him Adams for Peace. After that, there was a propaganda campaign, and they called Commissioner Murray called it propaganda at that time. That resulted in the greatest business managerial disaster in history that I've told you about. That was round one, fool me once. Then we had the nuclear renaissance. It's all streamlined, we have standardized design, AB1000 will build them large like cookie cutters, standardized uh, streamlined licensing procedures. Last time we had all this, you know, inspections and reinspections. Now we'll do it right. Fool me twice. Now we've got this mass manufacturing, standard, uh, small modular reactors. Let me tell you, the small modular reactors that's being certified, it has a steam generator inside the reactor, which will be very much more radioactive than the steam generators we have today, which is the most frequently replaced uh, expensive component of pressurized water reactors. In fact, they have been replaced in all of them. Fool me thrice. Now, if you want to be in the fool me thrice school, expensive and doesn't work too well and takes too long, sitting at the edge of the climate precipice, please vote for them. Otherwise, vote for them. <laughs> Thank you, Arjun Makajani. The resolution is it's time to expand nuclear power. Here making her closing statement against the resolution, Kirsty Gogan, co-founder and executive director of Energy for Humanity. Thank you. So the vast majority of nuclear plants that are being built today 
they're being built on time and they're being built on budget and they're very cost competitive with fossil fuels and with renewable energy. And when we uh, did this study looking at new build uh, projects around the world for the British government, we looked back at the United States experience. And you know what was really surprising and interesting to find was that you guys have done it before as well and you've actually achieved uh, an average cost which is, which is equivalent to the best uh, costs are being achieved in the rest of the world today. And you know how you did that? You did it through a programmatic approach by building up skills and experience and capability within the supply chain, within the labor force, within the regulator, within the project leadership team to deliver good projects. So you've done it before. Now, the anti-nuclear movement was created at a time when climate change just wasn't really understood as an existential threat. And if it wasn't for climate change, yes, we should just burn gas. But now is the time to reevaluate what we think of our, as the risks of nuclear energy in light of the real and present dangers presented to us by climate change, by air pollution, that threaten the lives of millions of people materially every single year. And we just cannot base our climate mitigation strategies on poor people remaining poor because it's not realistic, it's not ethical, and you know what? It's not our decision. Condemning women to spend 35 hours a week collecting firewood to cook food, which will then kill her and her children through respiratory illness, isn't an energy strategy, it's a humanitarian disaster. But you know what? This creates an untenable gap, a gap between what the science tells us is needed and the reality of what's happening in the world. Because yes, we're successfully driving down the cost of renewable energy, and yes, we're building wind and solar, but carbon emissions are not coming down. Now, the deadlock is breaking. The Union of Concerned Scientists have changed their minds. And if you think that there's a chance that what I'm saying is true, then you will support the amendment, the motion to, to expand nuclear energy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kirsty Gogan. And our final speaker will be speaking against the resolution. Please welcome to the lectern Gregory Yatsko, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm convinced. I think they've presented a wonderful argument. It's just not true. <laughs> so, you know, we can talk about these very impassioned pleas about women not burning things. That's not what we're talking about here. We can solve that problem of that woman with a solar solution today. I don't need a debate. I don't need uh, an NGO to make that argument. That's what's happening in the real world. The solutions that we need to deal with the climate crisis are in front of us. They're cheap, they're available, but they're not nuclear. It doesn't matter what we decide today, what anyone decides today about whether we should, we should give nuclear a new, a new opportunity, a new look. It cannot compete in the marketplace. It cannot provide the kind of power we need in the future. And it has all these ancillary issues about safety, which we haven't really touched on, but which are there. So these are wonderful, impassioned statements that, like I said, always make me think, my gosh, am I thinking the wrong thing? And then I go out and I see what's happening in the real world. And we certainly aren't building enough of what we need to build, but we're certainly right now today building far more renewables than we are building nuclear. And we're not building anywhere close to what we need with nuclear, and we can't build anywhere close to what we need with nuclear. So we can say that we're gonna give nuclear a chance and that it's time for nuclear, and it doesn't matter. Our hope rests with the things that can work today, not with the things that we promise are gonna get better tomorrow, because they've been promising for 15 years that they're gonna get better tomorrow, and they haven't. And yet, 
while we're talking about this, renewables have quietly become so cheap that they can work everywhere. And they can be deployed in, in rapid numbers. And in fact, I'll just close on this. We hear a lot about the wind not blowing and the sun not shining. The sun comes up every day. It only doesn't shine during an eclipse. And how many solar eclipses do you remember in your life? <laughs> solar works on a cloudy day. It's still sunny. So if you think that we can solve the world's problem with nuclear, then, then God help us, because we're not going to get there. So vote for our solution. Thank you, Gregory Yatsko. And that concludes closing statements in our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. We want to have you again go to your phones to place your second and final vote. System is the same as before. Go to iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll be presented with the choice of for or against or undecided. I'm going to uh, observe you for a moment and look for a return to eye contact. I'll know that you're done. Boy, a lot of people got that done fast. I'll give it a few more seconds. Okay, while you're doing that, um, first thing I want to say that this was a, uh, this was a, a, a very passionate debate and it was somewhat technical as well, but I felt that all four of you um, helped us understand the technical side of it, that you were very, very accessible, and that that was really, really useful to all of us. And also, it's clear that you feel very passionately about this, all four of you, but um, as I said at the beginning, our goal is to get people to think, but to, to respect the fact that there are valid opinions, there are valid arguments on the other side, whether you agree with them or not, they're reasonable, they're respectable. And you all showed that respect to each other, so you met our goal and our targets. So I want to thank you for the way that you all argued here today, so thank you. Um, I also want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question. I know it takes a lot of nerve to do in a room like this, especially when I'm sort of being kind of fussy about it. Um, every question got through. I thank you for having the guts to do that and for moving the conversation along. And for all the people I couldn't get to your questions, I'm, I'm sorry for that. But in, in the next universe, when this happens again, I'll, I'll call on you and we're there. Um, <laughs> Uh, there, I, I saw at the beginning that a lot of you are new to our debate. I'm, I'm gathering that for many of you, perhaps it was the topic that drew you out here, but our regulars know that we can make pretty much any topic really just interesting by the quality of the people we bring on stage and the depth of the arguments that they make and the way that they, they bring you to their point of view can just be fascinating and enlightening and a positive experience in itself. So I hope that we'll see you newcomers uh, come to our future debates. I want to let you know uh, our season, uh, you can go to our website to uh, iq2us.org to get a look at what's coming up. But our, our season over the next couple of months we're going to be looking at the two-party system. We're going to be looking at the tense debate over whether anti-Semitism uh, and anti-Zionism are the same thing. We're going to be looking at whether the Electoral College has outlived its usefulness. We're going to be looking at whether it's time to forgive student debt. We're going to be looking at the ethics around gene editing and much more. So again, that's a lot and it can all be and will, all will be really fascinating. I also want to point out to newcomers because our regulars know this, Intelligence Squared US is a, is a philanthropy. Uh, the Rosencrantz Foundation set this up uh, as a, as a as a gesture towards civil discourse and these debates 
are, uh, it's basically a nonprofit uh, operation. We do these debates, we put them out to the world for free. The podcast is free, we give away the radio broadcast, the stream is free. Uh, we do it to, for, the, for the mission I stated, and we see a lot of uptake around the world, and schools were being used, et cetera. So this is all, the, yeah, this is the beginning of a commercial, where I, I want to say that we would love your support. If you would like to become a contributor, uh, again, go to our website. Uh, small contributions are as valued as big contributions, and I really do mean that. And there are ways to be, become more involved with us by joining our Friends program, which would get you tickets to all of the debates and also um, entrance to post-debate events that we do. We're going to do one tonight, in fact, uh, where you can have dinners and, and, and meet our debaters. And uh, those are really, really great opportunities. So please, long term, stick with us and consider supporting us as well. Um, well, we're waiting for the uh, votes to come in. Oh. oh, thanks. Now, I'm, now I feel so bad I cut you off at the end there. Uh, the last one. When you say these guys, I've got to say that these guys, is, you, you know the team behind the curtain there. Yes, uh, yes. There's a very, a very, very dedicated team. team of really, really, really smart people who are working very, very hard to pull these debates off. Boy, it's hard to put a debate together, and they do it on a regular basis, and I'm astounded by it. So thank you for that applause for them. Um, while we're waiting for the vote, sometimes when we have a little bit of time, and, and I see a certain dynamic among the debaters, uh, I like to just probe into it a little bit. And what I saw was there was so much common ground that the, you're, you're both have the, you both have the end mission inside of zero carbons and a solution to it. Some of you have undergone, you especially, Kirstie, talked about undergoing a conversion, switching sides. I'm just curious, as you listen to the arguments tonight, is, is there something that you heard from the other side that's, that, that's not part of your argument, but that you think your side really should listen to and take seriously, that they, they, that they actually do have a point? And I'll start with you, Greg. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, by the way, I mean, I by think, the way no, no is an yes. okay answer. No, no, this no. doesn't have to be a kumbaya moment. But. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, you know, the point, I mean, it, it, it is that we shouldn't take anything off the table. I mean, that's true. We, we absolutely shouldn't. I mean, you know, I think at the end of the day, nu nuclear is not going to deliver, but we shouldn't take it off the table. You know, I, I think in, the, in that regard. Right. In, in the, Which wasn't right. the resolution. But the resolution wasn't take it off the table. Right, right, right exactly. Don't yeah. expand it. Yeah. Kirsty, what, what do you think? Well, you know, I kind of started this evening saying that I really hoped that actually my goal was for us all to achieve some consensus. And I feel like that's happened, which is kind of was my wild ambition. So thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> well, Arjun? I actually changed my mind 14 years ago when my mentor, David Freeman, who's the father of energy policy in this country, wonderful man in his 90s, he said, uh, we should get rid of coal and oil and, and go to solar. This was 14 years ago when solar was $10 a watt. And I said, you're going to send every industry into bankruptcy or to China. We, won't, we can't afford that. And he said, I won't use the expletive, but he said, don't be a naysayer. You haven't studied the energy issue for quite some time. I worked for him in the 70s. So do it. And I did. 
And I surprised myself by concluding that it was possible to have a carbon-free and nuclear-free economy in the United States that would still be economical. At that time, it appeared to be extremely difficult with very ambitious R&D, but 10 years later, but it appeared to be a slam dunk. Where's the part and where that's you... Where, <laughs> well, I, changed my, I didn't change my mind as a result of this debate because I changed my mind previously as okay. a result of yeah. another right, fair debate. Enough. It's a tough one. I would say uh, to a first order, I will identify the space in which I think what you asked for, John, uh, could happen. That is to say, I think all of us were surprised at the level of consensus on the objective, okay? I don't think anybody here disputes that that first 10, 20, even 30% can be cheaply and wonderfully achieved through renewables. The open question, and it is an analytical question, is when it comes to these challenges, such as the transmission, such as the intermittency, such as the backup power and what it is, could, could we, you know, if we went off in a room somewhere and have, you know, proper analytics behind us come to closer convergence on what that thing looks like? I mean, yeah. that would be the one place. I, I wouldn't say we'd achieved it now, but that would be the open question in my mind that I think would be worth exploring. But it, but it couldn't be a smoke-filled room because that would be CO2. So, so none of that. We got too much of that. I have the final results. You have voted twice on the resolution. It's time to expand nuclear power. Once before you heard the arguments, and again, after you heard the arguments, we're gonna give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second votes. Here are the results. On the first vote, 42, sorry, on the first vote, 49% of you agreed with the resolution that it's time to expand nuclear power. 21% disagreed, 30% were undecided. On the second vote, on the second vote, 47% agreed with the four side. They lost two percentage points. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 21%, their second vote was 42%. They picked up 21 percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, it's time to expand <laughs> nuclear power, named our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time.